Welcome to the Hiking My Feelings virtual campfire. I was muted. Let's try it again. Yay! We're raising money for the American Diabetes Association as well as RAIN. And on the screen, you will see a rendering of the Hiking My Feelings Wilderness Wellness Center. This is number one, uh, phase one that we're working on. And in here, we have the dome, 32 foot by 32 foot deck with a 24 foot geodesic dome. That is the community hub for all things hiking my feelings so if you come join us for a workshop a wellness retreat a backpacking trip or just a day hike or if you're part of our online programming all of that will be filmed and housed and done in the community center which is that dome in the middle there we also have room for tents so people that come out for the weekend can come and stay with us here on site we have lots of great trails on the property as well as within a very short distance from the property so we're really excited to be raising this money and building this center so everybody can step into the healing power of nature with us. And I am reading tonight from chapter 15 called Embracing, Embrace Your Stink. This is one of my favorite chapters of all time of this book. So here we go. If you are joining us and reading along, we're on page 193 in the hard copy. And at the end of chapter 14, we left, uh, we were getting ready to leave to go to two harbors. And on our first hike across the Trans-Catalina Trail back in 2016, we didn't get farther than two harbors. So anything beyond two harbors is new territory for us. So here we go. Embrace your stink. Chapter 15. I woke up in the cold the next morning and made tea to help warm myself up. After the sweaty cruise from the airport into Little Harbor, I was okay with a breeze and some clouds. As we packed up to head over to two harbors, I gave myself a wet wipe shower and put on more deodorant. I went to the trash can to toss the wipes and I still had the deodorant in my hand. I tossed the wipes and turned back towards our campsite. I took a few steps and stopped, looked back at the trash can, then back at the campsite, then at the deodorant in my hand. Did I need to bring deodorant on a backpacking trip? Turns out it's a waste of space and pack weight because after four days on a trail without a shower, you're going to start to smell. That's just how it goes. Even with my dip in the ocean on my birthday, I was still pretty ripe, thus the wipe down. I started to walk back toward the trash can. I lifted the lid, then put it down. This deodorant wasn't physically heavy. I had saved the end of my last tube of deodorant for this trip, so I didn't have to bring the full tube. So as far as adding weight to my backpack goes, it wasn't actually heavy. But emotionally, ooh lord, this deodorant felt like an anvil in my hand. It was about the same brand I tested on the first TCT hike, the product of the beauty startup that I eventually became CMO of for those 95 glorious days. This deodorant was loaded with emotional baggage, thus very heavy. This product was the first I tried that Molly made. When this all-natural deodorant kept me from smelling disgusting all the way across the island the first time, I was officially a believer in the product she was making. When I got home from the first hike, I raved about the deodorant. I knew that personal care products were typically loaded with chemicals, and I wanted to know more. If this deodorant was so great, what was the skincare line all about? I wanted to know everything. I had no idea back then that I'd ever work with her at that company, that I'd be CMO of that company, or that I'd quit after 95 days. I certainly didn't know that I'd be on the TCT two weeks later after leaving the company with nothing else in my way, no responsibilities other than my safety hiking across this island. On my first trip, I identified that I had been sold a bag of shit by the beauty industrial complex. I had spent my whole life trying to fit in into a box 
and on the trail was the first time we attempted this hike, I found love for my body I didn't recognize. I had never felt that way about myself. On this trip, standing at this trash can with a tube of deodorant in my hand, the metaphors were almost too much to bear. Still standing at the trash can, I think about what this tube of deodorant represents to me on this trip. The end of a relationship, this deodorant no longer worked for me. I don't know if the formulation changed or if this was a rushed batch during the big orders, but I smelled the high heaven at home, let alone after four days and nearly 20 miles on the trail. As if on cue, Barry comes cruising past with a wisdom drive-by. Hey, ditch the deodorant, embrace your stink, he said, cool as a cucumber. As if I were now playing hot potato with this tube of deodorant, I picked up the lid and chucked the tube in the trash. I immediately felt lighter, like I did in the dressing room the first time, and after all the crying about my friends who had passed. Was this trash can a portal? Was this deodorant actually weighing me down spiritually and emotionally? I raised my arm to smell my pits. What died in here? Embrace my stink. I'm so ripe, I scoffed. Then I thought about it. Embrace my stink. The last time I focused on breaking down the myths I bought into, a be- uh, bought into about beauty standards, and on this trip, I'm chucking this deodorant in the trash. I don't need any of it. I'm going to embrace my stink. We all have a scent. Mine was unpleasant at that moment, but we all have a scent. It's what makes us, us. What else makes me, me? What are the things that people have said are bad or wrong or gross about my body that I've been trying to fix for years that I just physically cannot fix? I looked at my thumbs. I have bracket type D, better known as club thumbs, or as my sister liked to tease me, toe thumbs. I didn't know anything was wrong with my thumbs until my sister jeered at me one day after school. You know, boys don't like girls with toe thumbs. Sick burn. For the rest of my adolescence, well into seventh or eighth grade, I walked around with my thumbs tucked into my palm, forming a fist to hide the thumbs. Kids being Sid, kids, sisters being the worst to each other. Was this true? Probably not. Did I know that? Of course not. So I hid my thumbs, hoping and praying that keeping them hidden would maybe give me a shot in hell at meeting a boy and making some friends. I looked at my thumbs as I went back to the picnic table to grab my gear and carry on to two harbors. I knew what was coming. We had a big climb out of this campground and then one of the huge sections with no switchbacks. This was going to be a brutal morning, but at least it wasn't sunny. The clouds would help us again today. As I started hiking, I got a bit indignant about the thumb thing. My thumbs are adorable. Hey, when I give a thumbs up, it may be small and mighty, but there's no question that these are thumbs and they are up. I found a boy who likes me. Wait, has Barry seen my thumbs? Babe, have you seen my thumbs? I shout down to Barry. He had, been, he had me leading the way on this one, and I was Betty Goating, the lady version of being a billy goat, up this sucker. He couldn't hear me. I didn't want to repeat it, so I just flashed him a thumbs up. He flashed one back. I started crying. I paused, got a sip of water, and took off my hat to wipe my forehead. I contemplated getting my cold towel out, but I knew we were climbing on one of the most gorgeous views on this hike, and the wind was already picking up. I let my hair blow around in the breeze, cooling my head down. As I ran my fingers through my hair to pull it back into a ponytail, a fingernail got snagged on a tangle. I had a visceral reaction to the tangle, and I paused. Where did that come from? I asked myself. The last time my nails got stuck in my hair was when I got scolded for not straightening my hair for work. It was the summer of 2010. I had just started skydiving, and I was working at a prestigious PR firm down in Chicago. If you've seen the Devil Wears Prada, it's like that, fashion-wise. The folks who worked there weren't nearly as vicious as the characters in the movie, but sometimes the halls felt like a fashion runway. Coming from a suburb of Kansas City, and this being my first job that wasn't in a restaurant, I had some catching up to do on all fronts related to business casual and corporate appropriate makeup and hairstyles. If you know me today, you know that I wear my hair in its natural state. But prior to this section of the trail on this trip, I was a slave to a straightener for the better part of two decades. 
When I was working at the agency, the expectation was to look client ready at all times. I was working in the Chicago office, one of the largest offices for this agency, and a lot of our clients were based in Chicago. You never knew who was in the building. When I first started working there, I was making $10 per hour as an intern. When I got hired full time, I started making $30,000 per year. Moved to, moving to a city where I didn't know anyone landed me in a studio apartment by myself. Add to that my monthly bus pass, paying back student loans, car insurance, groceries, and there wasn't much left at the end of the month. Fashion had never been my priority. I was a cheerleader for most of my school years and wore uniforms to school on game days, so I didn't need a lot of clothes. When I went to KU, I was on the rowing team, and we had a team gear that I wore to class most days, as most days we had two practice sessions between weights and conditioning and actual rowing practice. So I didn't need a lot of clothes for college either. So this being my first job, not having a ton of money, I skirted the line of business casual and straight up casual more often than not. When Barry and I started dating, I wanted to spend as much time as the drop zone as I could. I would drive to the office on Friday morning and pay to park in a lot like one of the senior executives did. So also I could get out of the drop zone on Friday after work. I rarely made it in time to get a jump in before sunset, but I didn't care. I just wanted to hang out with Barry after he got done working. I'd spend all day Saturday and Sunday on the drop zone, jumping out of planes, helping where needed, chatting with Barry between drumps. I'd spend the night Sunday night and then wake up Monday morning, shower and get ready at Barry's, then drive into the office, park at the garage, and go to work. When I started pulling these longer weekends, I'd bring a bag with a change of clothes for work on Mondays, my straightener, and my makeup. The drop zone was the first place I found since moving to Illinois where I felt like I could be me, fully expressed. I could wear my comfy athletic clothes and not be judged. I could shower and let my hair dry naturally, letting my natural waves and curls do what they do. I didn't wear makeup when I was jumping out of planes. I was just me, and it was glorious. Until one weekend, I forgot my bag, and I didn't realize it until Monday morning. I went out to my car to grab my shower stuff, and it wasn't there. No clothes, no shower stuff, no straightener. Damn it. Fortunately, both of Barry's roommates were quite social with the female skydiving students and licensed jumpers, so I was able to find some shampoo and conditioner in the bathroom. My hair wouldn't be straight, but I could wear it wavy and pull it back a bit to class it up. I could pull this off. I had the outfit I wore on Friday. Fortunately, I changed before the bonfire, so it didn't smell like campfire and it was still clean. But Fridays were definitely super casual and the outfit I wore the previous Friday was very casual. It was all I had and I would rather be on time and not totally client ready than go all the way back to my apartment before work and end up being super late. I got ready as best I could, kissed Barry goodbye and went to the office. I was early, good. Our office was in an old medical building and everyone except interns had their own office with a door. I think I'm gonna be okay, I thought as I passed her office. The office I passed belonged to the woman who was my assigned mentor, someone I was paired with by HR when I made the transition from intern to full-time employee. Her role is to help me stay on track, keep an eye on my work, and make sure I'm abiding by company policy. Sydney, she called out from her desk. Shit, 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 she saw me, I'm in trouble. I walked into her office, head hung in shame like a kid on the way to the principal's office. I knocked twice, she motioned for me to come in. I sat down while she finished what she was typing. She looked me up and down. Yep, here it comes. She wouldn't stop looking at my hair. I could feel my face getting hot with embarrassment and she turned back toward her computer screen. So, hi, good morning, how was your weekend? She asked, not looking at me. Jesus lady, let's get on with it already. It was great, I spent all weekend at the drop zone, which by the way, she stopped typing and looked me up and down again. I trailed off as she gave me another once over. We have clients in the building today. Ah, agency speak for, what the hell are you wearing and why are you making me have this conversation with you? I know, I'm so sorry, it won't happen again. It just, well, 
when you aren't client ready, it looks unprofessional and we don't want to look unprofessional or unreliable. No, of course not. Again, I'm super sorry. She dismissed me and I went back to my office. Okay, got it. If I want to stay gainfully employed, this cannot happen again. God, I hope she doesn't tell my boss. I hope this doesn't turn into an office space situation where people keep coming up to me, asking if I knew we had clients in the building. Back on the trail, out of my daydream, I finish pulling my hair back, put on my hat, and continue hiking. Now, I envision myself as my own Flava Flav, the hype man from Public Enemy back in the day. I was hyping myself all the way up. It worked with the thumbs thing. Let's give it a go with the hair. Nah, girl, your hair is sick. People would spend good money to get texture like that. So many folks buy products, get treatments, use devices to get hair like yours. And what, you woke up like that? Your hair is gorgeous, and honestly, your hair has nothing to do with whether or not you're professional or reliable. If anyone says that to you again, you don't need that negativity in your life, professionally or personally. As I continued hiking, I heard my Uncle Mike's voice. Don't you dare cover up those tattoos, Sydney. While I have several tattoos, I've always covered up. Powderboarding helped me get over my irrational fear of people killing themselves at the sight of my exposed skin, but as far as my clothing choices were concerned, I was still hiding my arms in midsection. I thought about all the times I had covered up and was unnecessarily uncomfortable. Covering up because I wasn't confident in my own skin. I didn't want to be seen. I thought of all the invitations and opportunities I've turned down because I didn't want people to see me like this in my bigger body. Standing on the Amtrak platform at this Union Station in Los Angeles, July. Temperatures hovering around 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Trains throwing heat. Hair sticking to the back of my sweaty neck. Sweat beating up on my upper lip. Probably 120 plus degrees waiting for the train doors to open. Sweat dripping down my back. Oh my God, can the people behind me see my sweat stains? On my way back to San Diego after spending three days in LA at the NBC offices, what am I wearing? A long sleeve shirt, black pants, ballet flats, just trying to blend in. I almost passed out that day while I was waiting for the train. I chose to be uncomfortably hot so I could be somewhat comfortable in public. As long as I wasn't being seen, life was good. Thank God it's very recommended paddleboarding. That's done wonders for my confidence in my body. I had lived in Southern California for seven years and it wasn't until the summer of 2017 when I felt comfortable spending time in a swimsuit on the water. How many more memories could I have made? I didn't go to my high school reunion. I passed on opportunities that required nicer clothes because I didn't really have any. I will never turn down another opportunity because I don't think I have time to lose weight before the event or because I don't feel fashionable enough. I turned into my own hype man again. We were almost to the top. Listen, your tattoos are sick. You paid good money for that art and you know you love them, so don't hide them anymore. Let people see what you've got. It hit me. Three out of my five tattoos are skydiving related or I got them at a skydiving event. The other two were memorial pieces. Yes, the art was great. Yes, I wish my arms were more toned, but this wasn't only about the tattoos themselves or my discomfort in my body. Every tattoo I have starts a conversation. And until right now, on the side of this mountain, I wasn't ready to share the stories that correspond with each tattoo because the memories themselves were too painful. I went through my tattoos in order, reclaiming the stories of how and why I got them and why they were significant. I got my first tattoo the summer I started skydiving. One of Barry's students owns a tattoo shop, so he decided to host a tattoo party for his students in the city. As I sat down, I knew what I wanted. Three closing pins in a circle, indicating the circle of life and the rule of threes. In skydiving, the number three comes up a lot. There are three handles you can pull. The first one is your main deployment handle, which releases your main parachute. In the event of an emergency, if something is wrong with your main parachute, you pull a cutaway handle, which releases the parachute from your container, the backpack that skydivers wear, and then you pull your reserve handle, which deploys your reserve parachute. The system that keeps your parachute attached before you choose to release it is called a three ring, and is made up of three rings that interlock together, which are easily released when the cutaway handle is pulled. 
The closing pin, of which I wanted three forming a circle, is a little curved piece of metal that fits through a loop of fabric that gets passed through several flaps of fabric to keep your skydiving container closed. When you're ready to deploy your parachute, you grab your deployment handle, throw it into the airstream, and it catches air and extends a piece of webbing, which is attached to the pin. The pin is extracted, and a few seconds later, you're floating through the parachute, floating through the sky under a fully functioning parachute. The last anecdotes on the rules of threes, you try three times to correct a malfunctioning parachute before you cut away. And when people die in skydiving, they tend to die in threes. When we would get word of one fatality, we'd hold our breath until the next two were announced because it always seemed to happen in threes. You've been covering this one since you got it, Sydney. Remember when you asked your account lead for permission to get a tattoo? Remember when you showed them what you got? Remember when you were interviewing for the agency in Austin and you were afraid you weren't going to get the job because of a tattoo on your wrist? You've got this, you've always had this. I got my second tattoo at the first big skydiving event I hosted in the sport. I hired the tattoo artist who did my tattoo the year prior to come out and set up shop in the skydiving classroom, making tattoos available for anyone who wanted one that day. I wouldn't say that reading Total Freedom by Jiddu Krishnamurti was a prerequisite for dating Barry, but it could have been. When we were first started dating, he suggested I read it, and I did. Borders Bookstore in downtown Chicago had the only print copy of this book in the city. I picked it up after work one day and dove straight in. It's a very heavy read, one of those books where you sit down, read a chapter, and then spend the next hour contemplating the meaning of life. The book changed how I see the world, helped me understand non-attachment, and gave me an inside look as to how Barry lived his life. He was so carefree and cool as a cucumber, despite working in what I would say is a high-stress environment. This book showed me why. <clears throat> a friend of mine had signed a copy of her book for me at a conference earlier that year, and I loved the way she wrote the letter F. I asked her if she could write out the phrase total freedom for me in her handwriting so I could get it tattooed on my foot. She sent me a variety of options and I picked one out, printed it out and brought it with me to the party. I marched into the classroom where the artist was set up and handed my piece of paper. I want this on my foot with stars on it. He started sketching. I thought my first tattoo was painful on my wrist. It was nothing compared to some of the areas on my foot. I was grimacing and forcing a smile and overall having a pretty tough time with this tattoo. But by the time it was done, I was in love. I had the artist position the tattoo so I could read it when I looked down at my feet versus having the words face the opposite direction, making it easier for other people to read. This tattoo was for me. Total Freedom was the title of the book, yes, but to get to this place, getting this tattoo, hosting this party, I took a lot of chances. I moved to Austin the fall after Barry and I met, then moved back to Illinois to work in skydiving. I took a chance on love with Barry and put my corporate career on hold. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Total Freedom represented my freedom to choose. The placement on my foot was a reminder that I'm free to walk away from situations, people, and jobs that were no longer serving my highest good. Back on the trail, I thought to myself, total freedom, huh? Am I a psychic or did I just decide to really live my truth on this tattoo? When I got this back in 2011, I never would have guessed that I would have ended up living in Southern California or that I would retire from skydiving or that I'd be hiking up a mountain reclaiming these parts of my body that people said I should cover up if I ever wanted to maintain gainful employment. This tattoo is one of the ones I'm most proud of and I vow to share the story with anyone who asks. My first half sleeve wasn't far behind. We returned to the same shop where I got my first tattoo for another tattoo party. By this time, I had been skydiving for over a year and we were starting to think about where we were going to go for the winter. What were we going to do? This time, I wanted something that showed the balance between the sky and water, a yin-yang of sorts. I knew by now to just come with a loose idea and let the artist take the reins, and I'm so glad I did. It was a different artist this time, one who had been bearing, doing Barry's tattoos. When he came back with a sketch, I was blown away. It wasn't a literal circle-shaped yin-yang, but the tattoo had a flow between the components and felt like yin and yang. On top, a bird with its wings fully extended, wearing a top hat. On the bottom, a koi fish splashing in the water. 
my balance between sky and water, skydiving and rowing, two decisions I had made for myself, by myself, that were pivotal parts of my life. I joked that I'd tell people I love eating chicken and sushi if I didn't want to get into the whole story. I stopped to catch my breath as I had been charging up this mountain at a good clip. I let the rest of the memory with my uncle play out in my head like a movie, letting his words ring loud and clear in my mind. This was the tattoo my uncle loved so much. This was the one he told me not to cover up. Don't you dare cover up those tattoos, Sydney. I was wearing a shirt that covered up my tattoo, so I put my left hand on my right bicep and caressed it, petting the tattoo that lived underneath. The next tattoo was a memorial piece for my grandmother. She loved stargazer lilies and butterflies. Those were my only two requirements. I don't remember how I found Outer Limits tattoo in Long Beach, but the owner, Carrie Barba, was the one that I wanted to have do the work on this tattoo. In researching this shop, we found out that not only was it the longest running tattoo shop in North America, but that Carrie was also the only tattoo artist, male or female, to enter a tattoo convention and win every single category. She swept the thing. Her portfolio was incredible and I was drawn to her energy. She was also $250 per hour. We weren't in Illinois anymore. I remember when she showed me the sketch. In addition to the stargazer and butterflies, I requested a watercolor style tattoo. In the research I had done online, in looking at photos of watercolor tattoos for inspiration, I would have been happy with the style I saw most commonly done. A gorgeous tattoo with drips and drops of color here and there, as if someone were working with watercolors and actually dripped on your skin. What Carrie came back with was a masterpiece. I looked at the liter, it looked like a literal watercolor painting, something that could be hung in a museum somewhere. It was hard to envision with the outline, but I trusted her and knew it was going to be magnificent. I wasn't wrong. The piece took several sessions and I was obsessed with it. She managed to work depth of field into the art, butterflies and part of the flower puddle was in focus and the rest was blurred. There was a little pound beneath the flower and it had a single drop creating a ripple in the water with watercolor rainbow reflections on the surface of the water. There was so much nuance and detail. I remember asking Carrie if she ever felt energy during a tattoo session. Oh yes, of course, she responded. I'm glad you asked because I feel it here big time. Your grandmother was a sweet woman. I can feel her loving energy around this room, flowing through the machine, radiating from you. She is with you always, both in spirit and now with this tattoo. She handed me a small mirror to show her progress. I gasped audibly and, my tears, and felt tears welling up. I looked Carrie in the eyes and mouthed, thank you. She nodded and went back to work. The last tattoo I had done was a memorial tattoo for Adam. I went back to Outer Limits, this time with Adam's sister and mom in tow. They were in town for his memorial skydive, which I was coordinating as a function of Planet Green Socks. After the visitation following Adam's death, his mom and sister read a poem called The Dash by Linda Ellis. It talks about how on our tombstone, there is a day we are born and the day we die. And in between the dash is the life we live on this planet. The poem goes on to ask readers to reflect on how they live their dash. It was the perfect poem for Adam's funeral. He was only 23 when he died, but he lived a long life. He lived his dash. So we were all going to get live your dash on our forearm with some kind of illustration that reminded us of Adam. I didn't want standard tattoo script for this. I wanted real handwriting. A woman I had been working with on web design for the better part of a decade had really funky handwriting. So I asked her if she could write out live your dash for me to use in a tattoo design. Next to the words, I wanted a feather to represent Adam's eternal flight. He had earned his wings now. His mom chose a couple of elements from Adam's full sleeve tattoo, a timer filled with sand and a pair of dice. His sister got a compass, reminding, a reminder of his love of travel and her desire to keep traveling in his memory. When we walked into the shop, introduced ourselves to the artist and sat down to wait while she finished up the sketches. We spent all day in that shop while we rotated through the chair. We shared memories and stories about Adam, and it was one of the most impactful days I had ever spent in a tattoo shop. 
Little signs of Adam were everywhere, and it brought me great comfort to know that his mom and sister were also tuned into his various appearances. As the sun set and the tattoo shop got darker inside, I thought of one of Adam's signature phrases. On the drop zone in Illinois, we had the pleasure of witnessing some of the most beautiful sunsets over the cornfields. The land was so flat and the sky was so vast, it was a really spectacular sight. Adam always used to say, you only get so many sunsets. By the time I got up to the top of the peak, I felt incredible. I was out of breath, sweating like it was 100 degrees outside, and that process on the way up released some serious weight for me. I took off my shirt. Now I was making up for lost time. Sydney Williams doesn't wear shirts anymore, I thought to myself. I asked Barry to take pictures of me on top of this peak. I put my hands on my hips, stood like a superhero, and took a few deep breaths. I stood in the view, or I took in the view while standing in my power for the first time. I had just reclaimed parts of my body that people had told me I should fix. As I stood there, I recalled one of the lessons from the first hike, I love my body. On that first hike, I thought I was really loving my body, but here, in this moment, this feeling felt like self-love. What I had experienced on the first trip was the transition from hating my body to accepting it. That shift alone felt revolutionary for me because of all the negative self-talk sticks. All that negative self-talk takes up a lot of space. So in the absence of hatred, acceptance feels like love. I didn't know if it was the TED talk about power posing, the exercise I had just done to reclaim my shine, or perhaps a combination of the two, but this right here felt like I was home, mind and body reconnected. I took off my hat, walking to the edge of the cliff. I threw my arms up with glee, thanking this island for carrying the weight of the memories I was recounting here. The wind picked up again and I let my hair down. It was tangled and matted after four days on the trail with no shower, and some of the natural, natural texture was coming back. The wind whipped around my body, cooling me down rapidly on top of this peak. I scanned the surrounding area, observing the dramatic cliffs dropping into the ocean, looking back to where we came from, looking ahead to what was still in store for us on this section of the trail. This is new territory, I thought. Geographically, everything after two harbors was new to us. Physically, I've never hiked so far, this far in so many days. What will I feel like tomorrow? How about the day after that? What was Parsons going to be like? What about the route to get there? Emotionally, this is definitely new territory. I'm working through some serious stuff so far on this trail, and while there has been a significant amount of crying, none of this is scary. None of this makes me sad. With each step, I feel more and more like myself. With each step, I feel like I'm getting closer to the woman I have always known I could be. Confident that Barry got the shot, I turned around, made a beeline for my shirt, and got dressed again. It's chilly up here, and I was really looking forward to getting to Two Harbors and grabbing a buffalo milk. Boom, shaka, laka. That is chapter 15. And I'm not going to waste any time because I've got Natalie Rise here. So, hey, Natalie Rise, come on down. <laughs> yes. Hello. Unmute this. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Great. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm good. Staying up for staying well. Busy. Good. Yeah, busy is is excellent. So, for folks that don't know you, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us yeah. where you're uh, joining us from today? My name is Natalie Rice. I am an evolving uh, being. I am a musician, 
singer, percussionist, guitarist, songwriter. I am from Kingston, Jamaica. Oh boy, that is not California. <laughs> That's awesome. So recently, you put up a campaign of sorts. You released a song called "One Love Is Action," and. That is something that we firmly believe here at Hiking My Feelings, and I think everybody on the call can agree. Um, could you explain to us a little bit about that song and where you got the inspiration for it? For sure. Um, basically, it's a phrase that one of my good sisters um, uses often, and it's inspired by she is an activist, a filmmaker, a storyteller, and just a really a community activist. Um, she's also the granddaughter of Rita and Bob Marley. And she's such a powerful, inspiring person, and she has many. Um, you know, phrases that guide and out maybe we can. And she has many, um, you know, phrases and um, shape the many different camps. And we work together on and off into her. And who in her life does she feel embodies that? And she went on to explain that the term one love was first um, iterated by Marcus Garvey. And Bob had Bob Marley had been, you know, taken those words and turned them into the song that we all know and love, and that has gone on to do lots of work around the world. Um, but something that I wanted to really drive home in the message of this song is that one love is not just something we say and sing and um, you know we feel good and just just things, but it's more than that. It's, it's action. So it's definitely um, One Love is Action is a very uh, timely song to come out right now. And it, it, it always would have been, but now it definitely rings true because it's definitely time for action on Earth. Is my connection okay? Are you hearing me? Oh, I seem to have a hard time. You. Um, mm. Are you hearing me? Yes, I can hear you fine. <laughs> I'm just switching to my phone. My side. I don't know if I dropped out. There we go. All right. <laughs> I don't know where. Did you? Did you? Did it drop out? I heard, oh. <laughs> I heard you talk about the um, the meaning of one love. Action. All right. Whew. Yay! The first time we've ever had technical difficulties is on my favorite one. All right, awesome. <laughs> it could be on my end too. You know, it's, it's quite possibly my end. All right, so. Let's uh, let's chat about this chapter. So the chapter that I just read 
The mantra that we've selected for the chapter, it says, I am working to embrace my unique being in its entirety, mind, body, and spirit. And the title of the chapter was Embrace Your Stank. So it was about reclaiming these parts about our bodies, our spirits, our energy that people say that we need to fix or shift to fit into a very narrow standard, whether that's a standard of beauty or a way that we are supposed to behave. Um, what are some things that you do to just stay grounded and confident in your body? Well, first of all, we are all works in progress. So irrelevant of what anybody says at any time, as long as you are doing the works on yourself, what you know uh, resonates with your higher self, then really is no room, time, or space for anybody else's opinion. You know what I mean? Um, I think that we are our we are our own leaders, and we have to tune into ourselves to really find that the real guide and the real guidance. So anything coming from outside is is more likely a reflection of them. <laughs> not you. Um, that's kind of how it works for me. I just, I just, you know, I'm growing and evolving. Of you know, like we, we're all doing that inner work. It's that inner work that gives you the grounding. It's that inner work that gives you that strength, that mental clarity and confidence. Of course, it has to do with the 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 cleanliness of your temple and your body and um, your your inner environment, um, you know, the outer environment is a reflection of the inner environment, and that's on the microcosm and the macrocosm. So, you know, I really, you know, that's why I say the real revolution is the evolution of our consciousness and our minds, because it's that that work when we know when we grasp that we have the power that we are able to love ourselves completely. It is only then that we're able to really love other people and not just other people, but all people and not just people, beings, everything in this earthly, even, you know, cosmic family that we have. So that's where it starts, you know, like for me and and that's that's where you can grow to. So and like I said it is a constant evolving process. You have to have goals and you have to check in on yourself every now and then and you might be doing great for a while and you fall off, that's okay, get back up, you know what I mean? And um, I don't think anybody can really judge. I think judgment is is so is such a dissonant, you know, energy. It's like why bother? You know what I mean? Like why waste your time, you know, just just remember that you were at a place once upon a time. You are not the same person you were five years ago. And everybody is growing and evolving at a pace. And we come we, we come into lessons at different times in our lives when we're ready to receive them. And I feel like the expedition of consciousness growing now is so powerful and so, um, like, you can really see it. And it's so great, you know, it's so great. So more of us are reawaking and realizing the power we have. And then after that, how our connectivity and our collaboration can bring about 
new worlds and new creations and new ways of thinking, living, loving, existing. Um, yeah, all of these things. So you just got to stay, stay powerful in yourself. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that really resonates with me and that something that we believe at Hiking My Feelings and one of like my deepest, darkest truths is that when we are able to do this work for ourselves and find our own confidence and our own ability to not judge ourselves, then we don't, it's harder to judge others if you aren't already judging yourself. So when we do this work for ourselves and then we're like, we start glowing a little bit because we like reclaim our power and start feeling great. Then we show up in community and people are like, what is she drinking? Like, what is going on here? This is good stuff. And then they do the work and then that's <laughs> the big ripple effect, right? So like, what what are some things that we can be doing now? Like if somebody's watching this and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the most brilliant wisdom I've ever heard. What are some actions that people can take to start loving themselves so in turn they can love others more? I think that listening <laughs> learning reading i think um reading is a big one for me like the whole learning process finding like following your intuition as to where your energy may be um guided to learn um like sometimes it's a book or a website or an instagram page or whatever it is you know something will spark something along the way. Um, I think we have definitely have a responsibility to be active in seeking these things. Um, I can't tell anyone in particular what's the greatest thing for them to do right now because it's hard to know where they're at on their journey. But I think that the more you tune into yourself, take that time to really tune into self and consider, um, of course, just like we have to feed ourselves with knowledge and wisdom that comes outside of the mainstream media. Like evidently, you know, we really have to dive into these other avenues and feel what resonates and see. And you'll find that there is just so much incredible human thought and practices and art and like, you know, spirit, science even. Um, yeah, like there's so much out there and you really just got to follow your intuition and, and let yourself be guided and do the work, you know, and, and that thing, it's putting that one step in front of the other. And sometimes it can just be that moment where you go, all right, I'm just going to put on my yoga clothes this morning. And you're one step closer to actually doing, you know what I mean? Like Sometimes you have to trick yourself into doing it, but it is in the action of doing things that the lessons actually come and you'll find that you have revelations in whatever it is that you're doing when you're doing the higher works and the works on self. They just, it just comes. Like, that's how it works. You got to put in the work to get the lessons and then continue to grow. That's great. And there's a line and I'm... I can't remember the name of the song to save my life right now, but there was a line about how we are the only creatures that pay rent to exist on this planet, which basically blew my mind like all the way to somewhere else. Cause I was like, yeah, we are. And when I point that out to people, they're like, wait a minute, that's right. So when the spirit of building new worlds and stuff like that, what does the future, like what kind of future do you see and how do we get there? 
I think that, you know, the basic steps are revealing themselves. And especially with um, the global pandemic that um, has happened, I think just the idea of food scarcity is a huge lie, but also just you notice how going back to simple things like making sure you're self-sustainable, self-sustainability. In the case of anything happening out there, we need to really understand and embrace the fact that we cannot rely on a system for all of our wellness, you know, and our needs. And when, when you strip it back and when you see what has happened, you realize, yeah, it's safe, a shelter to be under food and clean water and air, you know, and, you know, family or community. So these are the things that you need to uh, put energy into, I believe, at this time. You know, one of the campaigns I'm doing is called Get Growing, and we're literally encouraging people to grow their own food. And that sounds simple, but it's a huge step. Imagine, imagine we did not have, nobody had to pay for vegetables or fruits because streets in every city and every corner there was just gardens and abundance of food like freedom food freedom that is self-sustainable and 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 not only that it's healthy like it's all connected and i think the more that you start to really um you know if, if that a line like that connects with you you you'll know and you'll find it you know we're the only ones who are paid to to live on earth yeah that the birds and the bees don't pay rent trees don't pay rent <laughs> So we know that that's an imposed system that doesn't actually equate to life, yeah? It's it's not a life giver, and it's not what we need to survive. What we need to survive is, yeah, ourselves and the resources that Earth has given us. And the more we go in on those things, like I said, that's where the lessons will come. Like, I'm learning a lot just from planting food myself for the first time now. And if I wasn't physically putting my hands in the dirt, I wouldn't be receiving these vibrations, you know? So plant your own food, catch your own water. These sorts of things are definite practical steps in, in um, yeah, building new wealth. And where can people find out more information about that campaign to grow your own food? Because I know you've been doing a lot with that lately. And if you want to speak more to that, that would be awesome. Because I know a lot of people in the comments and ahead of this were like, ask her about growing vegetables. So if you've got more to say, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, for sure. You can. Um, I'm, I'm part of a campaign by Itopia Life, which is a herbal dispensary here in Jamaica. They um, grow all of their medicinal ganja by the sun and um, all locally grown and really this campaign that they have imagined and enacted um, comes from just the exact feeling that they want their fellow Jamaicans and global family to have to be able to grow their own food and medicine knowing very well that that is a very powerful thing to do and a very powerful skill to have. And especially in all countries where there's poverty, it's like people know that, you know, farming can, can you can farm yourself out of poverty, yeah? Um, so definitely being a part of this campaign has been, you know, it's been a joy for me to be able to contribute and to learn and to really put myself 
um, forward in the space to be able to encourage people with something that's so in line with my philosophy about reclaiming the way we live and breathe and, and the future possibilities on earth. So yeah, definitely we've been um, planting from seed the first week. We've been planting from food scraps last week. This weekend we're going to be working with creative containers, how you can make um, like pots and stuff out of things you have already around the house, like recycling. I know there's a lot of gardeners out there. They already know all this stuff. So <laughs> that's cool though because I really, Really call on everyone to join my Rising Seeds Grow team um, at the end of this campaign, which is 11 weeks in total. The person with the most um, Grow team members get to give a community garden fully set up to a charity here in Kingston, Jamaica. And I've just seen the list of growers on my team, and they're from all over the world. And even just knowing that there's gardens in all of those places just brings so much joy like I feel like we've all won and that's just me like there's eight ambassadors so it's a really positive and and just having that energy you know energy feeds energy momentum feeds momentum we're open to learning we're open to growing and we want to do it together so yeah itopia life you can you can get all the info um itopialife.com of course through my socials, it's all there. It's all very recent. It's all happening now. Very cool. So if there's anybody in the chat, get ready to ask your questions. But Natalie, if you have a song you'd like to share, we'd love to hear it. All right. Let's do it. We're definitely going to sing the new tune. Woohoo! The newest tune, I should say. <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure you can do it properly. My world wide rebellion beast. Boom. Oh, 
in the zoom chat wants to know if it's too late to show you her poster for one love is action it's not too late not too late, you, not too still, late. you can absolutely still send it we're in the editing we're editing the um, um we're editing the video this week so we've started the edit if you still have some little video clips of it there is a link in my instagram bio it's a dropbox link you upload your images or um video to that link and i will get it and um that part of the video is not yet finished so there is still a little bit of time perfect awesome and uh mary is joining us she has a question go ahead mary hi thank you hi natalie so um i'm fairly new to the global reggae scene, but it seems to be mostly male artists. So um, I was wondering if you could speak to some of the challenges you experienced as a female reggae artist and how you've overcome them. It's a constant, um, it's, a, it's an ongoing navigation process. There is a lot of incredible female talent that I definitely feel needs to be given a more equal opportunity on the stage, um, in the reggae genre, and in other genres as well. Um, for me, uh, it's definitely a part of my mission and I've been working with some incredible upcoming talent. I want to say just like local talent in Kingston, Jamaica, that I'm using my platform to get out to, to share their um, art, which is amazing. So, yeah, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's a real thing. I think women in every industry face some sort of, um, you know, sexism and... Uh, Equal opportunity is not quite there. And for me, it is a responsibility to have an equal representation on stages. Like at a festival event, for example, 
if you're not showing a balance, <laughs> you know, on stage, then kids and people at the festivals, they're not getting a proper reflection of what the community is like. So, yeah, it's a big, it's a big part of the mission for me, for sure, um, to, to keep making sure the female voices are out there, not just because we need balance, but because there is so much incredible talent. And right now, right now in Jamaica, females are running the scene in reggae. And like literally anybody you ask can tell you that. And I would love to see the rest of the world follow suit. So it's there, it's happening. We just gotta all give our energy and you are well within your rights to demand more female representation at your local venues, events, festivals, shows. It's gonna be an effort of all of us to make sure that we get our sisters up there. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. I think we got Jess has a question as well. <clears throat> Hi. So much blessings. Thank you. My question today, uh, I was watching your videos because I do that a lot, and I noticed a hashtag. So I followed the hashtag of Occupy Pinnacle to a lot of amazing places on the Internet, but I'd love to hear more about it from you. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and this is interesting that you, you say Occupy Pinnacle because that's also another, um, the, the one, one of the driving campaigners is Donisha, the same One Love is Action. And you can see, you would have seen her if you were, if you were looking at Occupy Pinnacle. Um, so Pinnacle is the, uh, they call this, it's the first Rastafari community um, that Leonard Howell started, and Leonard Howell is the first Rasta man um, in Jamaica. He, he, he was a self-sustainable, um, self-governed, sovereign community. There was over 500 acres, including a pinnacle, which is like the top of the mountain. And now uh, they, they were thriving. They were up like they were a thriving community they had their own bakeries their own schools their own you know um housing and they eventually got raided they grew their own ganja and they would trade it and um you know like they they were doing it they were self-sustainable in a time where um it was very difficult to do that and um they then got eventually got um uh, invaded and there's now only I think five acres or less out of 500 um, that is still um, that belonged to Leonard P. Howe and his family they bought it but right now the government had taken all but the actual pinnacle is left like the land around the actual mountain top and if you look at my video warriors we filmed it up there I filmed it with Denisha. We had a Labor Day work day up there. We were planting, we were planting um, fruits, foods, and ganja. We were um, singing and chanting, and that video was filmed in part at Pinnacle. So Occupy Pinnacle is definitely a movement to reclaim the lands, and something that I think is really 
valid too is that then you know on on those 500 acres right now is a number of houses and um flats and you know it would be difficult to evict all the people that are on clinical lands right now however rastafari rasta is not asking for that they're just asking to allot them their 500 um acres but they can be anywhere other safe places around Kingston, other pieces of land where their community can gather um, safely and, and, you know, practice life and liberty of Rastafari. So, um, yeah, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing, really good one to be tuned into. Um, Itopia Life are also connected in there. They have a pinnacle strain. So there's a lot of support for pinnacle out here by musicians and um, community leaders. They see and know the history and the, the validity of having a place that is so historic and so old and so, has so much story and so much power, and you know, must be preserved. So, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's not only a matter of justice and legal right, but it's also a spiritual birthplace. Exactly. Oh. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Allison, if you want to share your uh, One Love is Action art, that would be awesome. Go ahead and pop that on. Yes. I'm not seeing it yet. If you switch to gallery view. Uh, Allison, unmute yourself. There you go. Oh, okay. There you go. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I met you in Denver. I met you in Denver. Nice. In nice. Yeah. So anyway, nice. this is what I'm going to send a picture of later after this. I'll send it. Please do. It's incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. All right, perfect. And Lauren, There's did you have a question? Incredible art coming in, it's been so nice. All right. Okay, well, it looks like we're good on this. So um, Natalie, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Um, what can we do to follow you? What are you working on right now that you're super jazzed about? You can follow me in all the typical places. You can find me Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have a Rise Warriors group um, on Facebook and I share some different things there and we'll be doing some more work there. As you know, I have the Rising Seeds at the moment. I'm focusing on that. That's the Get Growing campaign and new music coming. It's so, I'm, I'm in the midst of my album campaign. The album is called Worldwide Rebellion. And um, at the moment, uh, we are we released two singles from it, Fear and Dread and Worldwide Rebellion single. Um, I have some new music coming in a couple of weeks. Or is it next week? You'll have to see. And then we're going to keep on that journey of just keeping to, you know, stay connected in any way we can. So if anyone wants to join in and connect up of course link me i'm there and definitely um 
yeah, here, here for the journey, here for the mission. So yeah, stay connected and thanks so much for sharing the space. And I look forward to meeting and connecting in person. It's a must. And you know, as soon as travel opens up, I'm sure I'll be finding myself in the United States in uh, one way or another. So soon come. Awesome. Well, we would love to have you out here. You're always welcome at the ranch and at the wellness center once we get it built. So thank you so much for joining us and have a great rest of your night. Thank you. Take care. Peace. <laughs> All right. So Miss Serena, come on down. Yes. Oh my God. Pretty lady. <laughs> okay. Let me see. I'm going to switch back over to my computer. That is working. Da, da, da. Doing that. Thanks to Natalie. That was amazing. Right? Oh my gosh. Oh, you're muted. Kidding. <laughs> hey. Isn't technical? I was just telling Barry, I was like, so fun. Dude, well. I was like, I mean, we've been doing this. This is the 16th campfire. And I was like, what could possibly go wrong? I was like, or all of it. I don't know. It's fine. But you're here. So this is awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah. So for people that I'm don't know you, introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about um, where you are and what you do. Great. So my name is Serena Rana Dufo. I go by she, her pronouns, and I'm coming to you from Tucson, Arizona, the ancestral land of the Tohono O'odham and the Pascoyaki. I have a trails company, it's called Trails Inspire, and I promote the outdoors through writing, photography, public speaking, not so much public speaking right now, maybe more Zooming and <laughs> this sort of thing, um, but I also <laughs> do trail design and development for communities and private uh, land ownership. So, um, it's a multifaceted company. I've been on my own since 2017, and um, that's the basics. I uh, am currently, um, I finished a book. It's on the best day hikes on the Arizona National Scenic Trail. It'll be out in August, we're hoping. Um, there's been a lot of delays because of COVID, and so just trying to be flexible like everyone else. Awesome. And from what I gather, you are a lady with uh, a lot of trail experience, which also includes stories. So we're at a campfire. Do you have a story you'd like to share? I do. And, you know, I would totally be outside, but it's probably still over 100 degrees here in Tucson. So I'm inside and the air conditioning cranked all the way up, so. <laughs> especially because then I'd be all sweaty. So um, I do have a story and, you know, you're... Um, your theme was, you know, about being able to be your authentic, like most honest self. And um, when, you know, when I saw that that was the, the theme, it made me think of how much I've gotten from being a solo backpacker and doing solo hiking. And just that that is really when I feel the most free. Um, I'll back up a bit and tell you about the short version on how I got into hiking. Um, I didn't grow up hiking or backpacking or anything like that. Um, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and I'm the child of two immigrant parents. My dad is from India and my mom's from Italy. 
And though we went on trips to like national parks and things like that, I was growing up. My dad loves nature. He loves photography. That's where I got my, my love for the outdoors. But, you know, he didn't have that culture of going out for a hike. So we, you know, like never put on a backpack and went for a hike. Um, but growing up, I had, a, you know, connection to the outdoors, even in my suburban home in uh, Chicago, the neighborhood that I grew up in, they didn't finish building the neighborhood because there was a downturn in the economy. So as a result, there was this big chunk of forest right outside my house, right across the street. And so I spent a lot of time there, like just all of my time. I've had the same best friends since I've, I'm four years old. And so like we were always out there. So even though I never went hiking, I still had a really, you know, I had a strong connection to the outdoors. But it wasn't until um, I moved to Arizona. Here's the uh, interesting way I got out here. I was a fashion design major in college. And then I was going to go to the, I was taking classes uh, at a community college in Chicago and I was going to transfer to the New York um, Fashion Institute of Technology and in New York City. But one day I took a class on anthropology and that just really piqued my interest. I was kind of losing interest in um, fashion anyway. And so I decided to change my major. Um, and instead of going to Fashion Institute of Technology, I chose the University of Arizona, sight unseen. I never visited. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything, you know, no, no, didn't know anyone here, um, but they had a really good archeology span program. And also when I looked at the brochure, there was this line of palm trees on the campus with a mountain behind. And I lived in flat Chicago and I was like, wow, palm trees and a mountain. That's like amazing for anybody who lives in the Midwest. So um, it wasn't the only reason I chose, but definitely, you know, it, it definitely, I did not want to hike through the snow to get to my class. So I came out to Arizona and like I hadn't, I had been on one hike in Wisconsin before I went, you know, before I came out here and it really wasn't, um, I just didn't know anything about hiking. I did meet a couple people and they took me on my first hike and they took me somewhere with water, which was pretty amazing. And from then on, I was like, wow, this is pretty neat. Like I had no idea that there was water in the desert, but I um, was in my last semester of college at the University of Arizona and I was walking across the street. It was like three days into my last semester and I was hit by a car as a pedestrian while walking across the street. Um, they hit me, I, like I saw them coming, I turned, they hit me in the lower back and I was told that by eyewitnesses that I flew about four feet up in the air and I came down on my, you know, I came down in the street and nothing was broken, but it definitely like, it changed things. So it changed everything basically. Um, the acute injuries, this was back in 1997. So I was 23 at the 22 at the time and uh, of the accident. And so after a little while, the initial injuries went away, but I still wasn't feeling right. And I had a lot of chronic pain. I was having problems sleeping. I was having in just intense, like widespread pain that was disrupting my whole life. Things were getting worse. I was seeing all sorts of doctors. Nobody knew what was wrong with me for ages. 
until about a year and a half later, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain condition. And that was why I wasn't getting better. Um, a lot of times fibromyalgia can be brought on by a traumatic event, an illness. Um, there's a number of different ways, but it's uh, a neurotransmitter. Um, basically for me, it's, and everybody, everybody's fibromyalgia is different because it's a syndrome. And so it's a collection of um, symptoms. But for me, it was extreme fatigue and pain and just hypersensitivity. So like if somebody just poked you in the, in the arm, it would feel like somebody was like, just, it, was, it was so intense and painful. And, you know, sometimes even hugs were painful. And so I was only, you know, 23 at the time of my diagnosis. And it was just super, it was, it was depressing. Nobody knew really, this was back in the nineties. So fibromyalgia wasn't really necessarily known about so well. And then also there was a faction that thought that fibromyalgia wasn't even really a thing. And so as a result, like, even though I was hit by a car, I got very little in the settlement because they argued that fibromyalgia wasn't really a thing back then. Um, and so it was just really bleak uh, in November of 1998, uh, you know, over a year and a half later, I um, lost my job. I was working, um, I had gone to school for archeology span but I couldn't do archeology span because I was physically unable to do that. And so I went back to one of my other jobs which was in the video game industry. And so I was able to work at a desk, but after a while I wasn't even able to work at a desk anymore. And um, I ended up getting let go from my job as a video game producer. And that was pretty much the low point. The next couple months I spent in bed and just miserable and just didn't know what, didn't know what the future held. And I didn't hear any good stories to make me feel any better about it. And so, there was just all of this, you know, sadness and uncertainty. And then at one point I decided that I was just, I had this big giant dog. His name was Zeus and he was a German shepherd mix. Giant, big dog, um, always up for a walk or whatever. And so I just, I started taking walks with my dog and I found that, you know, as I was taking walks with my dog, it made me it kept my mind off of it. Even if I was sore after I do it, it would keep my mind off of it while it was happening. And, you know, it was just so nice to be outside and Zeus, my dog was always up for a walk. So, so those walks actually turned into small hikes. Um, at the time I was dating uh, my husband, Brian, and he was going with me for these short hikes. We would put a little, um, pack on Zeus and we'd go for these short hikes. And very, very gradually, I started to do longer and longer and longer hikes. I mean, we're talking over years though, but at one point they got too long for Brian. He was like, yeah, have a nice time and take the dog. So then it was just me and Zeus <laughs> and we were just kind of figuring it out for ourselves. You know, I didn't have a background in hiking or, you know, know a whole lot of anything, but I just did what I could. And I did it all solo too, because I was terrified to hike with anybody because I thought I was the slowest, just like super like weak hiker. And I just couldn't imagine that anybody would want to, you know, stand around and wait for me while I caught my breath or whatever else. And so I was like, okay, you and me, Zeus, we're going to do this on our own. And so that actually like, that made all the difference. And it 
really pulled me out of my depression. Not all the way, obviously. It's not like a you know magical fix at all, but it definitely like made me have something to look forward to. It gave me a sense of accomplishment, um, and it just gave me that some of that you know confidence back that I had lost being so sick and so weak. So um, so these hikes progressed, and then in 2007, I was on a hike and I saw this sign for the Arizona Trail. And the Arizona Trail is 800 miles long and it goes from Mexico to Utah. And, and um, when I saw this sign, it actually wasn't even finished yet. There's still probably about 60 miles left to build. But I got this idea that I was gonna hike the first 200 miles and I was gonna do it in sections and get to this point where I'd seen the sign. But then a friend of mine was like, well, why don't you just try and do the whole thing? And I was like, me, you know, 800 miles, how the heck am I going to do that? But then I realized I like started looking into long distance hiking because I had no idea about long distance hiking. I just knew day hiking. And so I had been on one backpacking trip. Um, uh, uh, some friends of ours got, got um, permits for the Grand Canyon. And so even though I was like, never been backpacking before or anything like that, the Grand Canyon was my very first hike I ever did when I moved to Arizona when I was driving to uh, move to the state. And so we did this backpacking trip and that was in 2001 and it just about killed me. I mean, it was so hard. We took way too much stuff. I mean, just all the classic, you know, bring everything but the kitchen sink, <laughs> way too many clothes or packs are like towering over our heads. And so after that, you know, I came up and I was exhausted and I was, it just took everything out of me. It probably took a week for me to, recover from it but I was like when can I do this again Brian on the other hand he was like yeah I think you can go you know have a nice time again and so um I didn't go backpacking though again until like 2005 I went on one overnight by myself so when I started the Arizona trail in 2008 I decided uh, like well I was going to through hike it but then the economy crashed so I just ended up changing it into a section hike and in February 2008 I did my first section and I decided to do it to raise awareness for fibromyalgia because like I said, there was no good stories out there. I saw just all these really just depressing, you know, she had fibromyalgia and she never did anything again, you know, sort of stories. And so I wanted to add something different to that narrative right. yeah. as a, as a, an awareness walk for fibromyalgia. And I raised money for the national fibromyalgia association. And so over the next, like, 15 months, I would go out for a couple of days at a time. Um, and I would hike the Arizona trail, I get a shuttle, I shuttle back and then I'd come home and work. And then I'd go go out and do it again. I had a bunch of people that, you know, pitched in to help Brian help my dad actually came out from, um, from he lives still lives in the Chicago area, he's retired, he came out to like shuttle me around and things like that. And, you know, just all of the trail community that I met just banded together to get me through this trail. And it was amazing. Even though I did almost all of it by myself, I still had so much support. And I did actually, um, I teamed up with a couple people on parts of the trail that hadn't been built yet. So it was like, you know, nasty bushwhacking through the desert with no trail. And so for those pieces, I, I, you know, generally teamed up with somebody, but I did almost the entire thing myself. And I, that was such an incredible experience because 
I always say that like the person that started that trail is totally different than the person that ended that trail. And I did finish the trail uh, coincidentally on May 12th, which is National Fibromyalgia Awareness Day, which just kind of worked out that way, which was an incredible thing. I mean, to walk through that, like walk through the portal where I connected my steps and stuff. And it was actually at the point where I'd had that idea in the, in 2007 in the first place. Like that was just, it was a priceless experience. And that basically gave, it's the, it's the foundation for everything else I did. I've done since, you know, it's that confidence and that, you know, I mean, like we're talking, I knew nothing about gear. I was in summit hut. You, you know, summit hut, you had a great, great talk there. I was in summit hut, like a couple times a week being like, Craig, how about this? What about this? You know, like I asked so many questions. And so like, I just feel like, you know, part of my message is like, if I can do that, like I knew nothing. There's no reason that like other people can't come out of their comfort zone and try things. And, you know, and I try and put myself up there as a, you know, as an example of, you know, even if you didn't grow up doing these things, and even if you don't have a background doing these things, there's, it's still for you. It's not, you know, it's not some elite thing. It's going out and taking a walk, you know, and people get really so involved and stuff and you have to have all these things and whatever else, but like, it's really just taking a walk. And I used to try and get people to go backpacking. That was like my, my goal. But then I realized like step it way back, like just get people outside, like go for a walk, you know, find your, find cool places in your neighborhood. I think that that has been, you know, really um, just super valuable these times where, you know, I'm not, I'm because of my fibromyalgia, I'm pretty strict um, on where I'm, where I'm going and, you know, who I'm, who I'm interacting with and stuff. And so like finding those places and just having those outdoor experiences and really, you don't have to go on an 800 mile hike to understand what I understood. And so um, that's where a lot of my, my work with Trails Inspire comes in is just trying to show people that, you know, you can go out and do this too. And here giving them, you know, information. And I'm really excited about the book because the book has been, you know, ages coming. Um, after I finished the trail, I actually got a job with the Arizona Trail Association and I developed their gateway community program. And then I, you know, I ended up through hiking the trail in 2014 to raise awareness for the trail itself and the gateway communities. And I did a through hike. And on top of the through hike, I did 12 fundraisers on my through hike. So on my zero days, instead of having a zero day and like chilling out, I like had a fundraiser with like music, food and beer for everybody. And it was, it was an incredible experience again. And so this book is like, it's the culmination of all of these things. And like, I know where the good spots are and I'm excited to share them with people. And not only does the book have, it's got 30 hikes all along the Arizona trail, but each of the hikes has a shorter hike version. So like if you're a beginner or if you've got kids or, you know, you've, you just want to try something out or you don't have a lot of time. Like each of the hikes has a short version. And so I think that makes it even more accessible to people because a lot of times people that are just beginners get left out and things like this. And I think, you know, my job is to make it as unintimidating as possible because in promoting the Arizona trail all these years, 
I find that people shut their brains off when they hear 800 miles. They're like, oh, 800 miles, I can't possibly do that. You know, but the whole point is you don't need to. And it's part of that, you know, you're still part of long distance trail culture, even if you're out there for the for a couple hours, you're still part of that trail. And so I'm really hoping that this book gives people an opportunity to, you know, explore and, and also that it shows people that Arizona is so much more than desert. It's just, you know, it's got pine, it's got ponderosa pine forests, it's got, you know, just so many different environments and things like that. And so I'm, I'm really excited to finally get this book in people's hands, hopefully in August. I didn't know how we were doing for time. So I didn't know if you wanted me to tell another That's story. That's awesome. That's great. I, um, so one, a couple questions that I have, um, how long does it take to through hike the AZT and what time of year do you do it? Because as you said, this is more than desert, but I'm thinking like, does it snow on the AZT? Like I've, I don't, I'm not familiar with Arizona. So tell us a little bit about that. It does big time. Um, actually the first thing you do, so, uh, people through hiking the trail will do it um, they'll head northbound from the Mexican border in March or April, depending on how fast you're going. Um, and then heading southbound from the Utah border, for, like between September and October. Um, but if you're starting at the Arizona trail in March, it's pretty interesting because the very first thing you do is you climb up to 9,000 feet, like in the first five months of the trip. And so like people, I can always tell when people haven't done their research because they're like, I had no idea that, you know, they're like, <laughs> they're like post Welcome. Yeah. And they're like, I thought I was going to be walking through cactus. But um, yeah, it's, it's very, you know, we have what's called sky islands in Southern Arizona. So we have these giant mountains that rise up to 9,000 feet. For example, Tucson is surrounded by three different mountain ranges that are over 8,000 feet. So there are these big mountain ranges with valleys in between. And so you'll go from 9,000 feet down to 4,000 feet and back up to 9,000, you know, 8,000 feet and down. So that's like the first 200 miles you're going up and down and up and down these gigantic mountains. And if you thought you were in for a flat walk, you're pretty surprised. <laughs> and uh, the reason that you hike northbound is because um, <laughs> in the spring is because in like north of the Grand Canyon near the Utah border you're on what's called the Kaibab Plateau that's at 9,000 feet that gets feet and feet and feet of snow every, on a like a regular year and so like if you wanted to start in March and also the road to the Grand Canyon and Grand Canyon North Rim is closed until May generally in a, in a regular year and so um, that's why you, you know you have to go northbound in the spring and southbound in the fall. And it generally takes people anywhere. It took me two and a half months um, to hike it. And it generally takes people anywhere from like, you know, 45 days to three months. But like, you know, then there's the fastest known time, which is, I, I can't remember what it is right now, but it's something like, I don't know. It's, it's not very many days. I think it's like two weeks. So, um, but yeah, but, so that's Holy why smokes you're moving if you're getting that done in two weeks dang oh, yeah yeah it's pretty it, we they had a couple people like not this year but last year it was like somebody broke the fastest known time and then somebody like broke it again and then somebody broke it and they broke both the supported and unsupported it was just it was 
super fast. So I am not fast. I actually, wow. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not super fast. I'm on the slower side, but I'm also slow because I love taking photos and doing, and just like staring at scenery and watching clouds and stuff like that. So I move pretty fast when I'm moving, but then I, I take a lot of breaks. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So where can people find you um, on the internet and uh, follow along with your book and everything you've got coming up? Uh, so I'm Desert Serena on all of my um, Twitter and Instagram and um, I Trails Inspire at Trails Inspire on Twitter and Instagram. And then I also have my blog. You can find it if you find Serena's. Serena's Wanderings is my blog. And then Trails Inspire is my website, my business website. And like I said, my awesome. book will be out in um, August. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If you have time, stick around because we're going to do the group gratitude circle before the end. But thank you so much for being here, Serena. I love your stories. Thank you for sharing. Thanks. And um, I appreciate that. Thanks, Allison. Uh, I love this dress. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> um, and it looks awesome. like Mary wanted to share something. Oh, yeah. Mary, did you have something to share real quick before we move on to Sue? There she is. Hi, I just wanted to share that I enjoyed hearing your story. I'm also from the Chicago suburbs and my only like outdoor, like nature experience was the forest preserves. Yep. <laughs> so, and my first hike ever was in Tucson visiting my brother at college at the University of Arizona. And I was scared to death. I was convinced we were gonna get eaten by coyotes and attacked by rattlesnakes. And it was like a midnight hike at their graduation. Wow. So, um, I've come a long way. I still have a long way to go. So I'm excited to pick up your book when it's out. And I just wanted to share as another Chicagoan that's now in the West coast, how much I appreciate your story. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. You know, I actually spent tons of time in Busty Woods, which was like the closest forest preserve. And yeah. it's so funny because I, I, when I moved out here, I told people, I was like, do you know that like in Chicago, in the Chicago area, if you go to like a forest, it's paved. Like we don't have trails. Like you're, you're going on a paved area with like a bunch of picnic tables and stuff like that. So it was hard to, for people to understand like where I came from when I first moved to Arizona because everybody's such a hiker. So yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on Sydney. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here. All right. Come on down, Miss Sue. Let's see. We're going to do a little switcheroo here. So she's just going to sit by me and we're going to talk. I think we can do this. Let me see if I need to scoot a little closer not burn myself to death. Okay. Hi. All right. So if you're in the chat, can you hear us? Okay. Get some light on Sue's face. Yep. Okay, great. Awesome. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so for everybody that doesn't know, Sue is the uh, founder of Sundarch Vibes. She's also the, um, owner of the reggae ranch so first things first why did you move here <laughs> oh boy <laughs> so um well for a long time we really wanted to get some kind of big property so we could have space to you know have our friends and family over and uh just share that space with them um it was always like a sun someday plan as you say <laughs> but um 
at the end of 2018, Dustin started having some pretty serious health issues due to an industrial accident that he had. And this made him basically allergic to every kind of household product and personal care product and like things from soap to shampoo to laundry detergent, cleaning solutions, all of these things. And it was such an impact on his life. I mean, there was a point where he was sleeping in the garage because he couldn't even be in our house. And um, I mean, he can't just walk into any building and uh, without having some kind of reaction. After, I think he went into the hospital the second time for anaphylactic shock, we realized like we had to do something. We had to make some drastic changes. So what we did was we kind of pushed forward with our someday plan <laughs> and started looking for things that were out with more fresh air away from the city more. And um, we found this place and this place was kind of perfect. <laughs> so I, I think as when we saw the stage, <laughs> we were like, that's it. Yeah, this it's is, done. This is us. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we got here. And what's your vision for this space? Um, so our vision is that it's a retreat for traveling artists um, and a private event venue. You know, we've had a lot of people approach us about having big festivals because we do have nine acres. There's a lot of space, but um, there's just a different level of uh, intimacy. Um, it's a different vibe when it's just kind of a small group, family and friends. Uh, and so that's how we came to thinking that, that we would stick with private events. Um, it's, it's just a different level of, um, I don't know, vibe, but also respect. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we really want people to respect the land, um, not trash it. And if you've ever been to a major festival and seen the chaos afterwards, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we don't have a huge crew to clean up afterwards. <laughs> like it's just us. us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got the wind that can do that kind of damage for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's kind of what we're thinking. Um, eventually I would love to make it more of an art center. Um, so we can provide, you know, a space for people to come and learn and, um, just experience art in a different way. And, um, just you know for the community itself i love that yeah. yay so uh this chapter is embrace your stink and i know that you have done some embracing of your stink do you have oh, any yeah. stories of embracing stink that you'd like to share with the class yeah so um god so many stories <laughs> take a lifetime but uh, i guess what i wanted to really talk about was kind of my journey uh getting here and um, so in 2004, I was at the end of a nine-year relationship with my ex-husband. And it was a pretty destructive relationship. Um, it got abusive in the end. Um, and I had to make a choice at one point. <laughs> out of the options that I had and suicide was one of them. Um, and I decided that wasn't going to be it because I couldn't leave 
my family that way. Um, I realized one day when I was thinking about it and looking at my kids, because I have, at the time I had three little girls, um, five, three, and one. And um, I realized that I couldn't keep going with how it was going because I didn't want them to witness what was happening and think that that was love and carry that into their lives. And so that's when I knew I had to make a change. And I found a way to get away. Um, at the time, we were homeless. Um, I mean, there were nights where I slept in the car with the girls and, um, and there were many times that I tried to leave and it was impossible, but I had a chance and I finally left. And I went into a domestic violence shelter and, um, and a safe house. And from there, you know, when I went in, I had my mom's car and a bag of clothes and that was it. I didn't have anything else. Everything else was gone. Um, when we had left our last place, we put everything in storage. We lost the storage unit, so I lost everything. And it, it was pretty devastating at the time. But when I got into the program and I knew I was safe, um, then I, I just realized at that point, um, for one, I had to put myself back together because I, I didn't know like I didn't know anything about myself. I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know why I liked the things that I liked, if I really liked them or if I liked them because I was expected to like them. Um, I wasn't, prior to leaving, I wasn't allowed to work. I wasn't allowed to go to school. So I was really kind of stuck in my options, I thought. Um, but after leaving and sitting there, and it, I had this weird sense of clarity. There, there was something so beautiful about not having anything. It was, and I call it like, there's a beautiful freedom in having nothing because I knew I could go in any direction that I wanted. Um, I knew that I wanted to help people, but I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> so I tried a lot of things. Um, I ended up, um, I went through the program. I graduated the program. Um, and then I got a job and worked my way up the corporate ladder. And uh, at, at, well, at one point, Dustin and I met and we ended up getting married. He helped me, um, you know, with going back to school and getting certified and, and doing all of that. And, um, and so I worked my way up and I became the head of HR for this multi-state company in a very male dominated uh, workforce and industry. Uh, it was very interesting, but, you know, and I thought, you know, what I wanted to do, which was probably right at the time, was to be able to support my family. Um, I wanted to buy a house. I wanted the car. I wanted the shoes. I wanted the clothes. I wanted the purse. Like, I, <laughs> I, I got to that place finally. Like, I, I'd get my hair done. I'd get my nails done, like, all the time, and I just felt like there was something missing. Like, I, I would sit in my office and just feel like I'm not doing what I should be doing. Um, and I didn't really have like an explanation for it. And I would break down some days and I just feel like I'm not supposed to be doing this. This isn't where I'm meant to be. I, I felt like I was meant to do something bigger. Not that I thought I was like Mother Teresa or anything, but <laughs> like I just, 
felt like something was missing. And so I tried so many creative outlets. I tried starting my own businesses and, um, and, and then I would realize at some point that it just wasn't, um, just wasn't right. And, uh, and I kept searching and searching and find, trying to find things. And uh, it kind of got to be like almost a joke that, oh, this is what we're learning now, you know, because I would learn all these skills and then I'd be like, yeah, this is not what I want to do. And then, um, but what I liked about all of that, you know, now looking back, because I would think, God, I'm starting this, I'm spending this money, I'm doing these things, and then just to dump it. But everything that I did, I learned a different skill that helps me do what I do today. So building websites, you know, having an e-commerce platform, um, just even, you know, just marketing itself and all of these things that I kind of just taught myself because I felt like it. Um, it all helped me to get where I'm at today. And um, yeah, so I ended up starting Sundrant Fives. Um, and then because I just have, we have this love for music, we would go to shows all the time. And I just wanted to keep doing that. And because music was such like a healer for me, I wanted to be able to give back to that. So if I could contribute back to the people that brought me so much healing and happiness, I felt like that was something that felt right. And so, um, yeah, that's what I did. And I, I kind of lost track of where I was going with that. But, um, yeah, that's, that's how you got here. That's kind of how I got here. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. You're a badass. I don't know about that. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, well, okay. Then what, what kind of stink did you have to embrace to get to where you're sitting right now? Um, you know, it was a lot of just funny because I feel like this goes all the way back. You know, I feel like I've always kind of been rebel of some sort like I never liked conforming to anything or anybody's idea of what I should be and the irony is that I did it so many times you know and you know I did it with my relationship I did it in corporate America you know I I just um I I just didn't like to do that and when I got out of that last relationship um, it really took me a long time to figure out who I was. And I mean, like trying everything again to see, do I really not like pink? Or is it because it's not cool to like pink, according to my ex, you know, like, yeah, just stupid little things like that. And then figuring out what I did like, and what I wanted to be and, you know, and just letting me be me. And, um, and kind of having faith in that, that I was doing things for the right reason. And I, you know, I was um, doing things um, that felt right and that was helping people and just kept moving in the right direction, whether or not I thought I failed at it. Um, so, yeah. Uh I, I don't, I don't know what else. You're so inspiring. I can't handle it. Uh, so if there's anybody that's watching or listening that is in a similar situation where they have 
something going on, um, a domestic violence kind of situation, what advice do you have for them to start making the, like, start wrapping their head around it and eventually getting out? Um, so I feel like, you know, yeah. on some level, you know, and, um, but, you know, you, it's so easy to talk yourself out of these things. You know, I did that so much, you know, and, and the thing is, is that I, I didn't come from a broken family. I didn't come from, you know, poverty. I came from a middle-class family and I had a typical childhood. You know, I, I was a cheerleader. I was a dancer. You know, I, I did all these things and, and I always thought I would never let that happen to me. If that happened to me, I would, I would be gone. That's what I always thought. But like, we do crazy things for love and, and it's not always bad. And, and that's the thing and it. And so it's so easy to convince yourself that things will get better, but at some point you have to make a choice, you know? And like I said, that, for me, it was easier to make a choice for my kids than it was to make a choice for myself. Um, and that's when I knew I had to leave. Um, but it's hard because it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's almost like getting, you know, stuck at a job where you're so dependent on it that you, you think that your life is going to end if you leave because you're going to be giving up all these opportunities that you invested and worked so hard for. It's kind of the same thing. It's like when you're with somebody for that long and you have this hope that life will work out and things will work out and, and get better and, you know, life will be grand at some point, but, at, you know, you have to just make a choice. And so what I did was I just started reaching out, you know, there was like a 1-800 number that was on the radio. And it was almost like a sign because I never heard it before, but maybe I just wasn't open to hearing it. And so at that point, I heard it and I like made a call and um, got a referral to a place. And then I went to that place. And that was, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> um, I, I, I was really disappointed in the first place I went to because they kind of let me down. Um, I went in there, told them my whole story thinking, this is it, I'm gonna get out. They're gonna save me right now. And then they put me on the phone with a list and had me call places on my own. And I had to tell my story over and over and over again. And oh, it was so, so devastating. And then I had to, and then I started freaking out. I was like, I, I have to go back and I have to have an explanation for where I've been because how am I gonna explain where I've been? And, and like, I didn't have a place to go. And so that was kind of horrifying. And then I went back and it took me another couple months before I could actually leave. Um, so it, it was um, taking advantage of resources that are out there. Um, right now, what I would say, because technology is different now too. And um, so there's online resources, but you have to be careful because you have to like delete your history on your computer and on your phone, you know, to make sure that it, you don't get caught. Um, but like No More is a good place to start. It's an organization online that you can go and you can click like, where can I get help and look at what's available in your local area because every place is different. Yeah. And, um, and then you just go from there. 
uh, if you are able to go to family, um, you know, that's great if you have a support system. At, for me, I didn't feel like I had that support system because I kind of burnt all my bridges with that relationship, you know, um, going to them for different things because I was asked to go and right. get money from people and things like that. And, and I really just wanted to, I didn't want to be a burden on anybody. And I just wanted to kind of do what I could on my own. Um, and I was able to do that and I and that's why I have faith in people that they would be able to do that also because I'm not that wonderful <laughs> I, I you know I, I think that you know as, as scary things as scary as things are you know like what I learned from that was bravery isn't not being scared it's doing things in spite of being scared mic drop <laughs> Um, let's see. Does anybody have any questions for Sue? If you do, pop them in the chat. Um, we're going to start with what will, yeah, actually, you know what? Let's just go straight to gratitude time. It's gratitude circle time. <laughs> so what are you thankful for? Thank you for joining us around the virtual campfire. Sometimes we talk about heavy topics, sometimes we tell poop stories, but regardless of what we've discussed, we always like to end the show on a high note. At the end of our live broadcasts, we invite our community to share what they're grateful for in a segment called the Group Gratitude Circle. Every week, I'm thankful for you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy life to connect with us and witness these stories of hope, healing, and inspiration in the outdoors. If you'd like to gather with us around the campfire live each week, join the Hiking My Feelings virtual campfire VIPs. If this were a legit talk show, you'd be sitting in our studio audience. We haven't been picked up by a major network yet, so for now, we gather on Zoom. Here, you can connect with the community before and after the broadcast, hang out for sound check when we have musical guests, participate in the Q&A, join in on the group gratitude circle, and be eligible to receive prizes and gifts from our sponsors, partners, and guests. Learn more and join us at hikingmyfeelings.org campfire. Don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, and anyone else who could use a dose of community and connection. Follow us on Instagram, we're at hikingmyfeelings, and you can tag your journey with hashtag hikingmyfeelings. And if you're picking up what we're putting down and you want to be part of this movement, join the Hiking My Feelings family at family.hikingmyfeelings.org. In case nobody told you lately, you are a brilliant human who is destined to do epic things in this world. Join us next week for more stories of hope, healing, and inspiration in the outdoors. Until then, happy trails!